and welcome back to this two-parter in our Can Marketing Save the Planet podcast, where we're talking to John Grant. Let's jump straight back into the conversation with Michelle asking John about a pretty big question he raises in his book. I really like that other question you raised in your book as well, which was about the question, what would nature do? Mm. When tackling yeah, I mean, the problem. The, 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 the whole new generation of um, designers inspired by nature, whether it's in you know architecture or drug discovery or, or so forth, it's, it's a very literal question, but we sort of, I think we're moving beyond it. There's a, like, Extinction Rebellion bang on a lot about colonialism, but I sort of think they're right in a way that the mm. desire to control empires and to control nature and things has, and the, and the patriarchy side of this as well, has driven a lot nice. of this. And it's not really marketing's always been the icing on that cake, but the actual cake's been sort of quite heavy. And the ability to... Um, I was doing a Deep Futures project once, and I was trying to explain an inkling of what I saw in some of the sustainability things coming through. And I was saying, it's just a bit like sailing. I mean, it's just so elegant. Things like regenerative farming and, mm-hmm. and permaculture, you know, working with nature are just mm-hmm. going, where does the wind want this boat to go? And how yeah. can we position ourselves and we get where we want to go whilst going where the wind wants to go? And we've had a century of heavy industry and chugging. And every time we hit a block, we add something else that's fueled yeah. by, by, by fossil fuels to sort of power yeah. ourselves Resistance through it. Resistance pushing through, isn't it? Yeah. And it's the same with financial systems. There's, there's often a very elegant way of constructing something that's a bit more like eBay or Linux that just runs on goodwill yeah. and everybody doing their bit rather than this sort of heavy sort of technocratic machine that some of the social media are where they just yeah. sort of, and I, I think that by the way, that's the, um, another heart of this is, is just try and be a village and not a machine. I think that is the advice anywhere in business or in, in life. Cause I think those are the opposing systems and a lot of what we want to see is achieved by groups of people who, who behave you know, so like seeing your audience as a community yep. rather than, than calling them an audience and somebody that you fire messages and promotions out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think something, you know, Michelle and I have been talking about and I've got a real bee in my bonnet is, you know, as part of the job I do working for CIM, for years we've been talking about, you know, the role of marketing and it's much bigger than advertising and it should feed into the strategy and it's always there's always been this argument back with, well, if you know, if marketing wants to be taken seriously, then they need to start to learn the language of finance and, you know, the C-suite. And I think, mm. you know, I've, I think sustainability has given us the opportunity now to really change that conversation because my kickback at the moment is, no, actually, the C-suite need to learn the language of marketing because actually we're bringing back what communities, to your point, are saying and we're looking at what's happening out there. And actually, we're speaking the language, we should be reflecting the language of those communities as to what we need to be doing Mm. to make change. So I've got this real thing going on now in my head around, you know, no, they need to start understanding the language that's coming from the environment. Such a good point. There was a uh, consultant I heard about this. He did workshops with the then board of directors of Cadbury's and they said, we're going to, you know, we want to involve you in innovation. So we're going to talk about three key audiences for us and we're going to basically share insights about those audiences mm-hmm. and um, and then we're going to use that to identify white spaces of opportunity. You know, you've been to the workshop and they did this and then theatrically they pulled back a screen and behind it were 
you know, for instance, Teen Girls was one yep. of the segments who'd been listening to what they said, who then came in and told them what they thought, which yes. <laughs> <laughs> is often quite different. I also think the other piece of that is to, like Charles Handy used to say, that the problems of corporate companies, like he'd originally worked for Shell, was that mm-hmm. you check your humanity along with your clothes and hack at the yeah. stands and when you go in That's and then right. you become a part of a system. And I did a workshop once with a large um, furniture company. And again, it was a client of mine from Ikea who was advising them. And she got me in to come do some creative like workshop with them, really get them thinking different about innovation. And a lot of what they sell is storage. So like shelves, boxes, or or Mm -hmm. things like that. And so, and the thing, it was just lucky, but it really works. The, The thing that we want to land as a point is you have to bring your own humanity and your own insights and your own experiences as a parent and as a averagely dysfunctional human being. So the, um, the workshop started with a slideshow. I got everybody to send in a photograph of, in commas, their most shameful area of storage in the home. <laughs> <laughs> and there was like the finance director whose car, whose garage hadn't seen a car. The, the female French CEO had loaded her daughter's bedroom when she went to college with this like all the kind of shit. And and they all looked at this. And after the laughter died down, somebody said, we can't possibly solve this with boxes and shelves. We're going to have to start providing a service and giving people an overspill and actually helping them organize this. And um, But they just got the insight. And I think that is the key yeah. to... Like innovation projects is when you can put yourself inside the movie and see what you need and what you really want. Then you move beyond this sort of factory line, yeah. you know, view of what can we sell them next and what features can we add this year to, you know, to the remote control or whatever to make a, a new selling point or maybe there's more pixels, but actually looking at what people struggle with. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, and that's a key aspect of marketing, isn't it? To understand the pain points and to understand the reality. Do you think Do you think we should rebrand marketing? If we just said that yes. we were the empathy department? Yeah. It, do you know what? It's really interesting. I, I taught yesterday um, the sustainable marketer course for SIM, for a, a, um, the course director on that course. And I had three very different, four very different organizations on this course. And um, and, what, and at the end, I always say, so, you know, what are you going to do about this? And, and how are they going to do it? And we'd work through the plans. And two of them, one of them, the first one came out and said, you know, the first thing I'm going to do is rebrand my department because people do not get what we are doing here as, as marketers. And uh, so the first thing I'm going to do is rebrand us and I'm going to, ta- and I'm going to do a, a, a town hall about who we are, what we do, and this is what we do in the organization. And I said, do you know what? I, uh, this is not the first time I've heard this. And, and I've worked on a number of projects where I've often gone in because marketing operates very differently in very different in different organizations and there needs to be that clarity as to this is what we're doing this is what we're about this is what we mean this is what we can bring to you and this is how we work across an organization we're not a department mm. you know we work we work across the organization with this connective tissue between HR and, and, and the tech teams and the R&D teams and, and the sales and the business development teams, we're all needing to, to kind of collaborate and work together. And marketing is this, is this kind of empathetic, this understanding, because we're also connected to the outside world. We're the ones listening and responding and able to draw that, that insight in and then collectively bring that intelligence and the, to, the, to the business. Again, it's like the, the village and the machine because it the is. data-driven, financial-driven side of marketing 
you know, has never been greater. And there are like companies that have that kind of immediate in- inventory, like a food delivery company is just a, you know, it might as well be a capital market or an exchange. It's just yeah. a ticker of numbers and yeah. tweaking the offers and other stuff. And actually there is obviously attention that needs to be given to positioning and broader ideas within that kind of machine. But the um, Paul Skinner, who's the um, longtime collaboration friend of mine, the founder of Marketing Kind, which is a great organization looking at, um, yes. you know, what if I, I hosted the first event and the question was um, um, something like, it was like, um, what if marketing wasn't selfish? That was the question. Um, but, it, you know, and actually lots of people with that spirit came from marketing. But Paul said to me, he said, you know Stockholm Syndrome, where somebody's taken hostage and they start to, like, kiss the hand that beats them. That's what happened to marketing with the it, finance department. They've just true. been... <laughs> oh, it is absolutely true, isn't it? It's like in all of the stuff that marketing, if you probably every marketer's got a story where they've gone in and gone, we should do this. And it's like, no. Like not even, and doesn't matter how much you try and explain it. And mm. then the argument to, well, you're not talking in my language. No, no, no. I'm talking in the language of the people who want it, you know? And this is mm. where I think, yeah, this, I think the conversation has to change because, you know, if the planet isn't around, then we're not going to need people um, in business anyway, are yeah. we? Yeah. And, and, but an mm. interesting thing about marketing and finance when it comes to sustainability is around the sustainable reporting. And right. of course, the sustainable reporting can't just be a whole load of numbers. You, you know, the, the finance guys are going to have to understand what is going on within a business and what they're doing in order mm. to be able to effectively report on where they stand around these key areas. It can't just the all be about numbers. First things I did on the sort of corporate sustainability front was IKEA had done. It was one of those reports, like they said at the time, if HSBC printed their report, it would fill two oh, rooms. And yeah. you've got a whole volume of do, how do we know every factory has a fire extinguisher yeah. was one, yeah. like reporting line of thousands. Um, what we did, and it was particularly uh, the creative director of my former agency, and you know, we were a couple of individuals at that point trying to help them make sense of this. And he suggested, which I think was a brilliant idea, he said, look, this isn't the way you manage it. This is just the way you measure it. How you manage it is you go, you've got three piles. You've got stuff that's not bad. We're the best way in the world. You probably never get to doing anything on that. You've got stuff that needs urgent attention and you can put that forward as priority. And then you've got stuff which is, oh my God, I can't believe that we've got the skeleton in the cupboard. We need to fix this like yesterday. Like now. And so we've got like a traffic light system. And when we started doing that, then everything starts to make sense. So here's a bunch of stuff that we're, you know, we're Swedish. We won't say we're proud of it, but it's kind of okay. And then here's what we're really working on at the moment. And then sorry for these things. And we're being really transparent. And, you know, here's the action we're taking to put it right. And it just simplified the whole thing because otherwise it was just a forest of, and, you know, questions like, is this percentage of, you know, virgin fibre in this particular bit of the supply chain, is that a good thing? And you can benchmark yourself against others. But if you can say that is driving 21% of our impact, so that's the thing we need to attend to. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And then that makes it also more transferable and translatable to the end user, to the consumer, to your investors, to your stakeholders who are looking in and think, who are the, what are this organisation doing around that? And I don't know if you've looked at this, the, one of the topics I found hardest in putting the book together was the issue of transparency. Oh. Yes, all the way through we talk about it. Yeah. And, but it's so hard to do. It's like, I mean, if you just use another word, honesty. Yep. 
yeah. you know, if you've read any Freud or anything else, it's just like, it's really, really difficult at every level. And it is um, one of the first talks I ever gave publicly on sustainability was at a company called Dragon Rouge, who are really into this stuff way back in the day, back in the 90s. And I showed a clip from um, Danger- Dangerous Liaisons oh, where John yeah. Malkovich contrived to be seen just at that moment handing coins to the peasants as his yeah. intended road pass in a garage. And that's often what brands are doing with cause-related marketing is being seen yeah. handed coins. But, and so the politics of, and I looked at some examples of transparency. So Everlane was picked out in one report as the most transparent company in the world. And then I found another report by an NGO saying, no, no, transparency is H&M. They publish the name and addresses of their factories. Everlane is actually very far from transparent. It's sort of Maoist. All we see is pictures of happy workers and trust us. And um, and there was a, a New York trendy uh, chocolate bar that I found called Raka which means raw or honest or something like that. And they had a transparency report inside the wrapper of their chocolate bar. But what it showed was that they were paying 2.5 times the commodity price for their beans. And I just said, this isn't transparency because that's just called speciality chocolate. In fact, they yeah. should on average, if they're green and blacks, be paying three times as much. Yeah. Of course it's higher. I mean, you just said you're not buying commodity like you're not buying commodity yeah. beans, you're buying speciality. And, yeah. you know, because you're a single estate chocolate, of course you are. So it's sort of actually disingenuous and it's so hard in human communications to be honest. I mean, it, there's definitely something you can do to be authentic and, and do the right thing and not mislead people. But transparency, I just find such a slippery it subject. Is. And it's utterly yeah. what some companies need is just to open everything up and, yeah, and show that we are we are doing good here, but be open to your point earlier about you know, but we know that we aren't doing as well as we can here, and so that I think I think people would society would have more respect for that. And that, you even know, when you do this, and it's a very winning strategy. So Panera Bread, food as it should be, held their hands up and said that there's 200 items on this no-no list, broadly E numbers, and we're taking them all out of our food because we don't think it should be going to our children, and we'll report back in you know, two years that we've done it and so forth, but they got so much credit and brand kudos for being humble and honest. And they've been yeah. stuffing us with this stuff for like 20 years and they're still full of high fructose corn syrup. There were lots of things that weren't on their no-no list. Um, but they, it's a, like John Malkovich, it's a very yeah. effective yes. personality-based positioning of, yeah. you know, yeah. humility and service and so forth. But you know that it's having a positive yeah. goodwill effect on your brand. But we even give things terms like terms like greenwashing and purpose washing. Let's just call it lying. I mean, it, it is. And, and then then I started looking into, you know, what's a half lie and a half truth. And then I just, I shut my computer because I thought I'm not even going down this road. It's like reading well, my own Twitter feed. There's a section of my book called um, Fifty Shades of Greenwashing. Which yes, is I a joke, read that. There's only about 13 of them. Yeah. Obviously it's an exaggeration. But it's actually... It's very rarely, occasionally I've seen examples of people telling barefaced lies um, and hoping they can get away with it. I know. And, but there's so many other varieties of spin, self-deception, things that aren't just supported by the research or things that are supported by very partial research. And yeah. um, It's a really simple thing, which is don't try and look greener than you are. And I always tell people to try and put their money into doing and making progress rather than into communicating and claiming credits. Yeah. And just like make the boat go faster wherever yeah. you can and help hope to be discovered. But um, but there are definitely markets where if you're quiet about this stuff and others are shouting about it, you can 
you know, you can fall behind. And I can understand why people want to communicate. But it's, again, it's the, you know, it's the devil's own work. It's a slippery subject, mm-hmm. the, you know, the comms and brand end of marketing. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we talked about it, it, at the Plan A, wasn't it, Gemma? You Exactly that with Marks and Spencer, that um, they had this great initiative uh, back in 2012, but they didn't really talk about it. They didn't really talk about it. They didn't really expose their consumer to the work that they were doing around. Well, they sort of did and they didn't because the, the like signage, it was like a wall of, you know, all our eggs are free range eggs, even in the past. So there was lots of it. The um, Talking to the team who were doing this at the time, their difficulty was that it hadn't really, it was started as a supply chain initiative mm. and then got to head office and Stuart Rose, the CEO, was hugely behind it. But actually internally it probably really touched about two and a half percent of the organization and they were trying to get that to five percent but you could walk into like i was visiting my sister in gateshead and went in to buy some socks for my son and then i said i don't want a plastic bag and she said oh you better take one love because the security guy i think you're trying to nick him (laughs) i said well i've just met somebody from your headquarters who's like who's who's supposed to be discouraging us from using plastic bags she said yeah but they nick him as well (laughs) It's just like, hold the receipt as you go out. <laughs> but she just hadn't been given, you know, no, the yeah. briefing and she would have been really proud of it. It would have made sense to her. Yeah. And she doesn't want, you know, polluted oceans and landfill no. sites any more than anybody else. But it no. hadn't, you know, the memo hadn't quite got through from head no. office. And that isn't the importance, isn't it, of the, the initiative, employee engagement, all your stakeholder engagement. It has to, it isn't just something that you do as this department that, is out there as the brand it is a it's something you breathe throughout the whole organization it's it cascades it's it's what you do it is what you are there's also a problem where um i've seen a few times where companies just are unbelievably sustainable if you read the carbon disclosure project reports on them and you look at what they're materially doing but it just doesn't feel green. It just doesn't feel any different than the other companies. But you can see a sustainability analyst that they're night and day mm. better than their very yeah. close high street competitors. And it is sort of, what do you do about that? Do you get out a huge green trumpet and start blowing it and then seeing if people care about it at that corporate level? I mean, the best you can do is maybe translate that into very engaging initiatives like recycling and other stuff where people can sort of see and touch it and feel involved in it. But it is um, people that, you know, I was interviewing a really senior corporate manager at one of the companies I'm thinking of, and they said the difficulty is that, you know, we're hugely committed to this as a company, but what we know is that we're not getting rewarded for it and it is adding a lot of cost and complexity. Yeah. And and so, so you know, you, we have the B Corps and they are this kind of, there's a standard, isn't there? And it's kind of like we, that, that we know they've been through the rigour, that we know that there's reporting, mm. they know that they're auditing, we know they're coming from this, uh, you know, the triple bottom line positioning and... And there is that awareness. If you know what a B Corp is and what that stamp means, because it's still relatively fertile territory for for many organisations. Some people will know about it. Some people won't know about it. But but there is a kind of global red, amber, green about how sustainable is this Mm. organisation, is this product, is this... I did... Me and an academic from Bath University and a green designer once tried to launch a universal environmental labeling labeling scheme called not bad which is what as you know is one of the heading of my yeah. book and 
the methodology we came up with was as judged by 14-year-olds doing their citizenship curriculum. And they would be, the 14-year-olds across the country this year would be given a stack of papers on the white goods industry and all of their reporting and the benchmarks and external things. And then they'd have to rank all the companies in order of not badness. And the reason for picking 14-year-olds is, first of all, expert review and scrutiny is probably one of the more robust methodologies because you get to a sort of rounded, slightly wiser decision. But secondly, anybody from the Daily Mail or on Good Morning Britain that wants to criticise this would have to make a 14-year-old cry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If you see what I mean, it's just kind of like, you know, and that that was before the sort of the Greta generation and the school strike, but it seemed like actually this is, they have got a stake in the future. Yeah. we, We increasingly will be able to sift and see you know if we do want to support if we want to invest with companies that are doing you know our pensions with companies that are doing more and so forth we or or we will have a direct read on just a bit like now you don't have to guess whether you know the different supermarkets are good value you sort of there's much more comparability in the work there definitely will be and traditionally it's been really difficult to get the data for that and still somehow it kind of misses how people choose things, which is so much more social and so much more emotional. It is. Yeah. I mean, I think we've just changed all of our chocolate, you know, and everybody I'm talking about it, it, the Tony's Chocoloni, just because you understand the cause, there's a social societal issue and it's delicious chocolate, but, you know, kind of chocolate's chocolate, but it's, it's, it makes the consumer feel better about their purchasing decision Mm. you know and so that's where we that's that's kind of where I think if you understand you can't unsee things can you and then and then if you do choose to make those purchasing decisions based on things that you are aware of then that's your responsibility that that is one of the things that um occasionally brands I mean Anita Dorotic did this with against animal testing, a fringe challenger brand can introduce a frame or agenda into a market which changes the whole industry. And I think that, you know, I constantly, if I see anything, like any project that has that sort of potential, I'll drop everything else to work on it because I can see that it has such a big multiplier. And, you know, now slave-free chocolate is a thing and there is, you know, there are questions to be asked. I was seeing papers years ago and I was writing about fair trade and people sent, sent me like academic papers about slavery and the supply chain in, in yep. various forms and child slavery and sugar as well is even worse. Yep. Um, I, I'm just looking at the time. Yeah, we need to get going. Yeah, let, uh, we'll yes. wrap up with the last questions and then edit yeah. this in. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, um, so John, we like to end the podcast asking all of our guests three quickfire questions. So I'm going to start with the first one. Can marketing save the planet? What's your view? I think it can be part of the solution and can really help some parts of the solution. I, I don't think it's a panacea and I don't think what we need is a marketing campaign for the UN. We need to just change so much. We need to redesign society and but you know marketing can play its part in certain places and it can also be a, quite a peril so we have to watch those too absolutely and then what do you hope business looks like in 10 years time uh just more human is the key thing i see that in lots of companies that i admire 
Fantastic. And last but not least, if you were to give one piece of advice, and you've shared lots of advice and insights, so thank you for that. But if you were to give one piece of advice to others around getting started with sustainable marketing, what would it be? Uh, Really simple, just a big piece of paper and write two columns. One is from, and be really honest about where you're starting now, and then write to and where you want to get to, and then start working. Marketing is the arrows that help you get between them. And I think just being really clear and simple about it like that is is such a benefit. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I've absolutely loved speaking to you. We could have chatted yeah, all, all day. <laughs> Do you have repeat guests? Yeah, yes. we will. We will definitely get you back on, on, on the podcast because uh, there's a lot of other topics that we'd love to pick your brains on, John. So mm. thank you so much for, for no, this. No, thank you. Thank you.